And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we get started with the sermon portion of today, I want to teach you something in case you don't know it. You may already, but I'm going to say something in just a moment, and you'll recognize when it is. But I want you to respond by saying, He is risen indeed. Very simple call and response. Christ is risen. All right, now we're going to do it again as though we know this. <laughs> Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. This is the Sunday we get to say Alleluia. We have gone through such a journey during this season of Lent and the past Holy Week. Last Sunday, if you were here with us, we ended the service in darkness. And we went through the grueling remembering of the cross and what the crucifixion process was like. Many of you were here on Friday evening, good Friday night. And we heard the seven final statements of Jesus from the cross. But today is a new day. It's Sunday morning. Today is the third day. We have move now through the darkness of Saturday into the light of Easter. And as you see, the Christ candle that was snuffed out on Friday night, it's relit, symbolizing the light has returned to the world. And so, indeed, we are celebrating Christ is risen indeed. Indeed, he is. And so today, we want to wrestle with the mystery of resurrection. And what that means for us. And one of the most powerful ways we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus is through the Lord's Supper. Before we begin the sermon, I do want to mention that when it comes time for the Lord's Supper, if this is strange to you, we want you to feel comfortable and to know what to expect. But we're going to invite those who would like to receive to come to the Lord's table. He welcomes you, not me, not our leaders, not the church, but Christ. It's his table, not ours. And he bids you come and receive these powerful symbols. You'll come down the middle aisle and receive the bread first and then the cup. And if you'll take those and hold them, return to your seat and take a moment of prayer and reflection as you prepare heart and mind to receive the symbol of the body and blood of Christ. And then when all are served, we will eat and drink together, even as we will eat and drink together in his kingdom forever. First, would you pray with me? Lord, it is always with fear and trembling that I approach the Easter sermon. It is as fragile as an egg. It is so precious and holds so, such potential for life. And my fear is always that I might drop it. But Lord, it is not me who holds you up. It is you who hold up me. And the same for all, Lord, I know, who are gathered in this place today. 
I do not know some people here. Perhaps we have not even met. And even those I do know, I do not know them as well as I could or know all of their stories. And so, Lord, I do not know what brought some of us here today. I do not know what tried to keep some of us away. A million things we could have done on Easter morning. Sleep late, early breakfast, a walk in the park, covering our heads and staying in bed. I do not know what brought some of us here today. And I do not know what some of us are struggling with. I do not know what fears or doubts some of us have. I do not know what anger or hate some of us may harbor. I do not know what doubt some of us have about why this is all happening or why I even come to church. I do not know what some of us need to hear. I do not know what some of us need not to hear today. God, I do not know anything, but I know you. And I know that you know. You know all. So God, as we said with our little children, let us have ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. It's such a joy to see so many new faces and visitors. In fact, I would say most of our regular multi-nation people are not here today. We are an international church. We are all internationals here today. Some of you are here and your home church wonders where you are. <laughs> but our people travel, they go home to their homelands, they go visit family here in different parts of Germany. Some are simply taking a much-needed vacation holiday. But you are the ones who are here. And so we keep it very simple on Easter Sunday in the international English-speaking church like ours. We keep it very simple because we don't know who will be here to serve or to do this or that. But you are here today. I'm reminded about how much more pomp and circumstance how much more drama and formality and how many more details there were in my previous church in my home country of the U.S. There were so many little details that all had to take place. And, and there was always great procession on Easter Sunday. The choir often marching down the center aisle and, and the choir filling a choir loft to sing music, but every time I see a choir marching in procession on Easter Sunday, I think about the story one pastor shared with me about his church's Easter morning choir procession down the middle aisle. You see, they had an a air conditioning grate right at the base of the church at the front doors and everyone who came into the church had to walk over this grade. I don't know if you've ever walked across, like, for example, out these doors, we have metal stairs and have that metal grate. Some of you 
Does it ever give you an anxiety attack? Just knowing, especially when you get up very high and you can see down below. So imagine coming into church every Sunday and seeing that and having to walk across that. Well, on one Easter Sunday, so the pastor says, the choir was marching in, very dignified, very professional, singing the old hymn, Up From the Grave He Arose. How many of you have ever heard that song before? A few of you. It says what you think it says. It's a resurrection song. It talks about Christ coming up out of the grave, coming up out of the tomb. And as the choir is singing it, one lady was wearing her fancy Easter shoes with long, spiky, high heels. And sure enough, as she walked across the grate, that heel stuck deep in the grate and would not budge But she did not stop. She did not pause. She just quickly slipped out of her shoes and kept on going. The next person in line sees the shoe. Quick thinking man, I'll fix. Men always think we can fix it. We rarely make it better. He reaches down in a swoop, grabs up the shoe, and along with it, the grate. (laughs) The last person is behind him in line, a little old man, and when he cannot see the grate is gone, he's gone. (laughs) And the choir makes its way unknowingly that the man is now in the hole at the back of the church. They make their way and dramatically, with a flourish, they sing the final line and end with up. From the grave he arose, and from the back of the church they hear a whispered voice, Y'all clear out, I'm coming up. (laughs) Easter, like Christmas, is full of unexpected things. You never know. And I don't think you are prepared for what you may experience or have already experienced today. And this day is a day of surprises. And and so the surprise is we have already heard the Easter story proclaimed. So I want to begin in a different place in the story of Christ, looking at the Gospel of John chapter 6. In this sermon series, we've been talking about bread. We started out with dry bread that was filled with sand. Some of you were surprised when the bread was broken and sand rushed out. And we said that the world offers us nothing but death and desert and dryness. Then last Sunday, we talked about the bread that was broken. As we talked about the cross and the crucifixion, the bread was broken symbolically as it will be done in a moment. But today, we look at a very different bread, the bread of life. That's what resurrection is all about, life. And in verse 35, Jesus proclaims this wonderful truth. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 
That's the purpose of this whole series of sermons is that we often find ourselves, as the poet said, living in quiet desperation. Hungry for something, but we can't quite figure out what it is. I always compare it to going to the refrigerator and you open it up in the middle of the night and you just stare. You don't know what you want. You just think you want something. And that's how we often go through life. But the world gives us nothing useful. No amount of philosophy, no amount of worldly religions, no amount of self-help, no amount of medication. Nothing will be enough without Christ. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you come to Christ, you will never be hungry. You'll never have that emptiness, that desperation, that longing, that sense of being unfulfilled. You may have times where your feelings are up and down, but those are feelings. They're no longer fact. And in Christ, the fact is we have life to the full. But here's the immediate problem Jesus points out, and this may be a surprise to you as well, that Jesus would say this, because he turns right around in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. In other words, Jesus speaking to the people gathered there hearing this message, he has shown them miracles. He has brought people back to life, and he will. He has turned fish into a multitude of fish. He's done miracle after miracle, and he has proclaimed truth after truth. There's never been a better preacher, proclaimer than Jesus. And yet, even in his presence, he said, you do not believe. How many of us today who have never seen Christ, never witnessed His miracles, never heard Him speak aloud, find ourselves today the subject of Jesus, His sentence? You do not believe, do you? Some of us, even who are believers, perhaps have our moments, do we not? Moments of wonder, Wonder sometimes turns to doubt, and doubt left unanswered can lead to a loss of faith. Nothing wrong with wondering, nothing wrong with doubting, but to do nothing about it, but to just say, I have no answers, that's the sin. Whether we are believers or not, Jesus says, you, you have your questions, don't you? And what I often hear is that people will say, I am uh, an atheist. But there's never really been a true atheist that I've ever known or heard about because they, they would immediately get down to the bottom level of where they're, where they're at in their mindset and would admit, well, I don't know that there is a God. I just have never had it proven to me that there is. That's at best agnostic 
But I understand where they're coming from because what they boil it down to is that what holds us back sometimes from believing, whether we are Christians or not, is that we believe sometimes that this all is so irrational, illogical. Dead people don't come back to life. If we go even all the way back to Paul standing before the philosophers and the greatest thinkers in Athens in the Areopagus of his time, even they scoffed at him. This man is a babbler talking about resurrection. Dead people? What is this? The walking dead? And so it all seems like it doesn't match with reason and science and logic, and so we wash our hands of it. But I'm not so sure that we have to have one or the other. Reason or faith. I'm not the type of person who is often forced to choose one thing or the other. I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe about 10 years ago, I was traveling with my family to Amsterdam, and I'm a cheapskate. I'm a very cheap person. I always find the cheap hotel, and then I, I tend to pay for it later. <laughs> so I found this very cheap hostel to stay in. And as we're checking in, this place, I'll fast forward for a moment. When we get into the room, we find that where there should be one of those little glass look holes, there's just a hole. <laughs> and where there should be a floor in front of the door, there's just a hole. <laughs> and where there should be a, a, ma a clean bathroom, there's just a whole lot of mold. And it's nasty. In fact, it was so moldy my oldest son woke up in the middle of the night with a nightmare that, that he was all covered in mold and it had taken over. I think there's a TV series like that now. But here was the question that I was asked at the check-in registration desk. He asked me, would you prefer a window or a toilet? Are these my only options? <laughs> and what do you mean either a toilet or a window? Is there a bucket involved <laughs> in this window? I will tell you I chose the toilet. <laughs> but I reject, I reject this premise of having to choose. Can't I have a room with both a window and a bath? Is that so much to ask? And so when people tell me my reason or my logic or my scientific mindset does not allow me to accept this, I say to them, why do you have to choose between faith and between reason? You do not. I'm not going to get too deeply into this today. It's too much for a single Easter sermon but I want to offer you a few reasoned, logical, even scientific responses to this question that the atheist or the agnostic might ask. And there are, are really a few basic questions that are unanswered for such people. And perhaps for you as a believer, you need to hear this for a friend. 
Or perhaps you need to hear it for yourself. One of the, the first arguments that people say is, there is no God at all. I could talk to you for hours about that. But the basic argument is that science has a theory called the Big Bang. And I'm not going to argue with you whether that is true or false. I'm going to skip that completely. And I'm going to go to the heart of the scientific argument that all of life boomed into existence. And let's just accept Let's just accept that for a moment. I don't, but for the sake of argument. What does science in physics tell us about this moment? It tells us one very important thing. It has a beginning. The universe has a beginning. This is a universally accepted truth in science about the universe, that it was no universe. In other words, there was no time no space, and no matter, and then, boom, they began. I love it. I love it. I really love it because this is what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created. In other words, there was a moment when there was no universe, and God created the universe. So we agree, there's a beginning. Here's another wonderful physics truth and a scientific premise that's true of all scientific experimentation that if something has a beginning it has to have a cause you will not find a scientist that disagrees with that statement that everything that begins to exist must have a cause things do not just exist for no reason. This is why many physicists say we just want one miracle, the Big Bang, just one miracle, and then we'll explain the rest. But if something has a beginning, it must have a cause. We agree again, don't we? I agree. In the beginning, God created. There's the cause. Here's another scientific truth I love, that they say that the cause for the universe must not be time, space, or matter, because those didn't exist. So it must be outside of time. We call that eternal. It must be immaterial. It must be not not only timeless and immaterial, but not confined to space, without spatial constraints. Immaterial, eternal, beyond space, beyond time, beyond matter. That sounds a lot like what to you? God. That sounds a lot like God. So we agree again. And there is one fact that comes more from the realm of logic and reason and philosophy, not just faith, but that is that if something causes something to happen, it must have some sort of intention, some sort of rationale to it. And if you look at the ordered universe, that's pretty hard to argue, that this everything has to fit I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson, the famous physicist, explaining to me why we have life on Earth. 
He says because of the way water freezes. You may not know this, but as water approaches freezing, it gets heavy, like everything does, and it falls to the bottom. And then it gets, the top layer gets heavy, cold, and falls to the bottom. But once water approaches freezing completely, it becomes buoyant and floats. And it covers the top of the ocean and the top of the ponds and the tops of the rivers and tops of the lakes. And then it becomes an insulation so that nothing underneath it can freeze. And that is why fish don't freeze to death. They can live under there. And he says, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson, famous modern physicist, this is the only reason that we have life on the planet is because the top layer freezes and doesn't fall. And we don't know why. I would say, I know why. (laughs) The next question people have, if we can agree that that's more evidence for God, and there is no evidence that I've ever heard against God, what about Jesus? I'll put you to bear with me because I think this is so important. I don't want us to leave here without hearing all of this. That when we hear about Jesus, the argument is often this. I love this one. Well, Jesus died, and it was hundreds of years after his death before the Gospels were written. Have you ever heard that? Well, number one, there's no historian, atheist historian, secular historian, or religious historian that agrees with that. That's an internet, that's a YouTube, that's a TikTok rationale. We know that the, the Gospels were written 30 to 50 years after Jesus. That's one lifetime. Do you understand what that means? That means that when the Gospels were written and being spread out throughout the world, there were people who were alive that could have said, this is all made up. In fact, even the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, who was not a Christian, not a believer, a secularist, tells the same story. There was this man, Jesus, he died on a cross, and his followers say he rose from the dead. That's all contemporary. And you may say, well, that's still a long time, 30 to 50, even 100 years. How many of you believe in Alexander the Great? Raise your hand. Believe he lived? Believe he existed? Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C. When was his first account written down that we have, that we we have preserved through antiquity? 300 years after he died. But guess what? We don't have that. (laughs) That's gone. That's lost. We only have a copy of a copy of a copy of it that was written 1,000 years after the first copy. And yet we all accept he he existed. He did the things he did. He conquered the world. So if you compare 1,000 years to the Gospels, it's like the difference between writing a book and sending a tweet. It's instant. And I want to give you one even better. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul quotes the earliest creed of the church. For I handed on to you of first importance what I in turn had received that Christ died 
for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. Every scholar, atheist, secularist, religious all agree that that was written three years after the death of Jesus. Now that's a newsflash in the ancient world. All of this comes together to prove to us, and there's a great book you should read by Lee Strobel called A Case for Christ. Lee was an atheist lawyer. He was a lawyer who was convinced there was no God. And lo and behold, Lee Strobel's wife gets saved. And she comes home talking about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And he decides he's had enough of this, so he endeavors to write a book disproving the historical accuracy of the Gospels. And he worked on it for years. He interviewed the most liberal secular atheist scholars he could find. And guess what happened by the time he finished writing the book? He said, I cannot doubt that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is who the Gospels say that he is. So my friends, on this Easter Sunday, we've got two choices about Jesus. We can either say Jesus was a liar or he was a lunatic because he was... He said he was the son of God. And we can say of his disciples that they were either liars or lunatics because every last disciple, every single one of them was willing to and did die for this proclamation. Would you die for a lie if you didn't have to? And yet they died. But I'll give you one better proof, if you will. You could take all that fact and science and reason and logic and historical accuracy, just set it to the side. Here's the evidence I have for that Christ lives. I know my Redeemer lives because he lives in me. I have experienced him. I grew up in a hard family that did not go to church. My grandmother took us to church, but it was more a punishment than a reward. And I, I never believed until I experienced it. We said this is the bread of life, taste and see. The Lord is good. Jesus closes his message by saying, everything that the Father gives me will come to me. And anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. I have experienced the power of resurrection in my life where I should be dead today. I have no doubt about it. I should be on the streets at best. And my story is not so dramatic. It's just so mine and real. And if you look around in the faces of others, they have experienced this as well. They, don't, they have the proof in their life. 
and in the transformation of life where there was hopelessness, hope, despair, joy, no purpose, direction, and purpose. And remember your own story, those who struggle today. Jesus has come. He brought life. He offers that life to us all. This is the reason why we come to this table now at the close of our service. The Bible tells us that it was on that last night with his disciples, the last night of freedom. They were in an upper room sharing in the Passover meal. And Jesus, in the midst of the meal, we're told he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Yes, this is just bread, but it's a symbol of something very real and spiritual in this very room, the truth that Christ was broken for you, for you. In the same way, we're told that he took the cup. And blessed it, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my own blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Again, this is just juice. But it represents something spiritual and real that you can taste, you can touch. It proclaims something that you can also taste and touch in your spirit today. The living water of Christ. As we prepare to serve, would you pause with me in prayer and prepare your heart and mine. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for these symbols of body and blood that on this Easter Sunday we may believe that they might renew our faith and deepen our faith. And for those of us who have had no faith, may today be a day of resurrection. May today be a day of new life. May today be a, a day where we discover life to the full. Eternal life begins here, now, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.